Turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter, well, technically it's 11 and 12, but the end of 11 into 12. We're working our way through uh, what is called the fool's speech of 2 Corinthians 11.21 to 12.10. And we've said in a number of, over a number of weeks that the Apostle Paul, because the Corinthians had become infatuated with the foolish boasting of the triumphalist false apostles, Paul has decided that he was going to don the mask of a fool and he was going to do a little boasting of his own. He reasons that if the Corinthians were enamored with fools, he'd become like a fool in order to win back their affection and allegiance for him and for the one true biblical gospel that he preached. And so Paul is going to, in this passage, answer a fool according to his folly, lest that folly ensnare the hearts of his dear spiritual children and drag them to judgment. And Paul warns us that he's going to speak in foolishness as he adopts the language of fools to boast about his ministry. At the outset in, in chapter 11, verse 1, sort of as a preface to the fool's speech, he says, I wish that you would bear with me in a little foolishness. In verse 16 of chapter 11, he says, receive me even as foolish so that I also may boast a little. Since verse 18, many boast according to the flesh. And verse 19, since the Corinthians tolerate the foolish gladly, Paul, verse 17, is going to speak not as the Lord would, but as in foolishness in this confidence of boasting. And so as he begins the fool speech, he says in verse 21, I speak in foolishness. And we spent three sermons working through verses 16 to 29, one to explain the meaning of that first half of the fool speech, and then two following sermons to draw out several lines of application, highlighting numerous lessons that we've learned from what Paul writes for, for us in this text. But last week, we turned to the second half of the fool speech, chapter 11, verse 30, to 1210. And I mentioned that I was going to take the same approach. Last week, we just walked our way through that entire text, ensuring that we understood the meaning of Paul's account of his, several of his personal experiences. And this week, I hope to make some particular application of that text to our lives. Now, in the first half of the fool speech, Paul turned the false apostles' foolish boasting on its head. Instead of bragging about his strengths and successes like they did, he boasted in his sufferings and his weaknesses. His entire ministry was marked by one trial after another. Well, now as he comes to the second half, he turns to give two specific illustrations of his weakness to really demonstrate the absurdity of boasting in oneself. And as he presents those two illustrations of his weakness, he, he does so by giving accounts of three personal experiences that he had. And I want to review those just briefly. That first experience illustrating Paul's weakness that he narrates for us was what I called an embarrassing descent, an embarrassing descent. And we, we saw that in the final four verses of chapter 11. Starting in verse 30, Paul writes, If I have to boast, I will boast of what pertains to my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. In Damascus, the ethnarch under Aretas the king was guarding the city 
of the, of the Damascenes in order to seize me, and I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall, and so escaped his hands. So Paul begins by reiterating his distaste for boasting the way that he's doing. He says, look, if I have to boast, I'd much rather not boast at all, but if I have to boast, I'm not going to boast in my strengths like these phonies do. I'm not going to speak of what magnifies my own glory. No, if you force me to boast, I will boast only of what pertains to my weakness, only what magnifies my insufficiency so that I could put the all-sufficient power of God on display. He gives this solemn oath of truthfulness in verse 31. This is an oath you'd expect to come before a fanciful tale of personal magnificence. But what follows is nothing of the sort. It's just a routine recollection of a personal embarrassment. And we said that Paul's doing that. He's using this oath that would normally come before boasting of wild successes and then boast in foolishness, boast in weakness rather, because he's mocking the foolishness of boasting in one's accomplishments. Somebody comes along and say, the Lord Jesus Christ, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ knows that I'm not lying. I have been great. I have done this. I have done that. I have done that. And so Paul comes along and says, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who's blessed forever, knows that I'm not lying. I have been scum. I have been hunted. I have been beaten. I have been imprisoned. He's mocking them. And he tells this story of the time the governor under the king of Nabataean Arabia conspired with the Jews in Damascus to hunt Paul down at the city gates and how he snuck away hiding in a basket used to transport dead fish as his disciples lowered him out of a window. And we, we, we spoke about how the Roman military gave an award of valor. We, it's called the Corona Moralis to the soldier who was first to scale an enemy fortification. And Paul says, I wasn't the first soldier up the wall. I was the first one down the wall. And this is Saul of Tarsus. This is the august young Pharisee who led persecutions of these anti-law idolaters, these Christians. He was the one who set out for Damascus to persecute Christians, and now he's got a retreat from Damascus as a persecuted Christian. Such was his embarrassing descent. Then he narrates a second experience, and, and while the embarrassing descent was a clear illustration of his weakness, this second scene could be mistaken for an illustration of strength. But the only reason that Paul speaks of it here is to give the context for another illustration of weakness that comes later. So that second scene is what I called an exhilarating ascent. Embarrassing descent, exhilarating ascent, right? Read about that in chapter 12, verses 1 to 6. So he begins again by talking himself into boasting further. He says, verse 1, boasting is necessary, though it is not profitable. But I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. He's, he's forcing himself here. And he goes on to visions and revelations because the false apostles claimed those kinds of revelatory ecstatic experiences were evidence of their own spiritual superiority. So Paul recounts his experience of being raptured into heaven itself. He says, verse 2, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or out of the body I do not know, God knows, such a man was caught up to the third heaven. And I know how such a man, whether in the body or apart from the body I do not know, God knows, was caught up into paradise 
and heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. So boasting like this is so distasteful, so disgusting to Paul that he talks about his experience in the third person. He fabricates a person so that he can distance himself from the folly of boasting. But he says this man in Christ, who we know is really Paul himself, was caught up into the third heaven, verse 2, which is to say into paradise, verse 4. He was literally snatched away up into heaven into the glorious paradise of the immediate presence of God himself. And that experience was inexpressibly, indescribably glorious. He says in verse 4, I was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. It was so wonderful, so transcendent, so marvelous that it could not be adequately expressed in human language. The loveliness and the beauty of heaven was inexpressible. But, verse 5, he only wants to boast in his weakness. Not because he's got nothing to boast about, he says in verse 6. If he wanted to, there are plenty of accolades, plenty of accomplishments on his ministerial resume, things he could list without embellishing or, or without fudging on the truth at all. But, he says, I refrain from this so that no one will credit me with more than he sees in me or hears from me. He wanted no part of being revered on the basis of unverifiable spiritual experiences. All that mattered was what one could see in him and hear from him. All that mattered was his life and his doctrine. That was it. And then we came to verses 7 to 10 where we discover that Paul shared this exhilarating ascent only as a, a prelude to another of his weaknesses, perhaps the greatest weakness of his life, what he calls his thorn in the flesh. The third experience that Paul recounts is what I called a debilitating nuisance, a debilitating nuisance. He says in verse 7, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. So such glorious privileges tempted Paul to become prideful. Even a man as sanctified as him needed to stand guard against the temptation to become arrogant, to glory in his privileges, to think himself spiritually superior and to exalt himself. And so to keep him humble and thereby to keep him useful, for ministry, the Lord God afflicted his servant with this thorn in the flesh to remind him of his fallenness, his weakness, his utter dependence upon divine mercy. And we mentioned that many proposals have been offered concerning the identity of Paul's thorn, but that no one can really be certain as to what exactly the thorn was. It may have referred to a debilitating bodily ailment. It may have referred to a demonically inspired false teacher or something else. We can't be sure. But one thing we do know is that it was so severe that Paul described it as a torment. And it was such a torment that he says, verse 8, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. But the Lord answered no to that prayer. Verse 9, and he has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. See, rather than change Paul's circumstances, Jesus gave Paul the grace that would change Paul. 
Paul wouldn't be delivered from his trials. He would be equipped to endure his trials as a testimony, as we said, that the presence of Christ is sweeter than the absence of suffering. See, faithful apostolic ministry was not health, wealth, and prosperity. It was not freedom from conflict. It was not victory and comfort and strength, as these false apostles were saying it was. It was weakness. It was faithful endurance of hardship so that the minister gets none of the glory and so that Christ gets all of the glory. And if that were true, if that obtained, if that came to pass, Paul was delighted with weakness. Look at verse 9. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And I trust that our exposition last week paired with that brief review has combined to be a sufficient explanation of the meaning of this text. But our task this morning is to draw several lines of application from that text so as to experience the benefit of that text as it bears directly on our lives. And altogether, I've observed no fewer than seven lessons that this text has to teach us concerning various aspects of our lives as we follow Jesus. And if you're not new to Grace Life, unsurprisingly, that won't happen all seven of them this morning. Uh, we'll, we'll see if we can work our way through the first three of those lessons today, and we'll save the rest for our next time together. So, the first lesson that this text has to teach us is a lesson concerning pride and humility. A lesson concerning pride and humility. And our text teaches us this lesson in a number of ways, from a number of angles. In the first place, it teaches us about the detestable wickedness of pride. The detestable wickedness of pride. In verses 2 to 4, Paul narrates his exhilarating ascent into heaven where he hears inexpressibly glorious things, so wonderful they can't be put into words. And even if they could be put into words, he wouldn't be allowed to, to speak them to such a wicked and perverse generation. And he tells us in verse 7 that that revelation and others like it were so surpassingly magnificent that he was tempted to become prideful. And because the temptation to exalt himself was so real, the Lord followed Paul's exhilarating ascent into heaven with a debilitating nuisance in his flesh, what Paul calls a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Now, torment is the verb kolafidzo. It literally means to strike with the fist, to beat. Uh, the New American Standard translates the word that way in Matthew 26, 67 and Mark 14, 65, where it describes the scene of the trial of Jesus where the members of the Sanhedrin spat in his face, it says, and beat him with their fists. In 1 Corinthians 4, 11, the verbs translated roughly treated. In 1 Peter 2.20, it's harshly treated. This was the torment of Paul's thorn, beatings, harsh, rough treatment. And this torment was so severe that, again, verse 8, he implored the Lord, begged him three times that it might leave him. Now, can you hear the overtones of Gethsemane in that description? 
Jesus also implored his father three times that the cup of wrath would pass from him. And Paul's talk of imploring the Lord in the midst of torment is reminiscent of Luke twenty-two forty-four, where it says, and being in agony, he was praying very fervently and his sweat became like drops of blood. The Lord Jesus, who knew what it meant to earnestly pray for the removal of torment, nevertheless sent this tormenting thorn through the agency of Satan himself to his dear servant. If our Father, who loves us, who is the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, is willing to send a messenger of Satan to torment the choicest of his servants, despite persistent, desperate, faith-filled prayer in order to keep them from exalting themselves, how wicked and detestable of a a sin must self-exaltation be? Presumptive arrogance, a sense of spiritual superiority, pride in oneself. No matter how well-cloaked in Christian cliches and humble brags, are so dangerous, so destructive, so harmful to the spiritual fiber of God's people and to the health of Christ's church that God is willing to send debilitating weakness into the lives of His people to purify us from it. John Calvin, quoting Augustine, put it this way. He said, Now let all the pious take notice as to this, that they may see how dangerous a thing the poison of pride is, inasmuch as it cannot be cured except by poison. See, pride, we talked about this briefly last week, pride is spiritual cancer. Some of you know what it's like to do battle with cancer. And if not personally, many more of you have had a loved one afflicted with that horrible disease in some form or another. And in so many cases, the prescribed treatment for cancer is chemotherapy. It's the introduction of toxic poisons designed to kill the cancerous cells in the body. And unfortunately, chemo also kills healthy cells. Under the care of a qualified physician, we willingly inject our bodies with the poison of chemotherapy to destroy the devastating disease of cancer. While cancer can ravage the body, pride ravages the soul. Pride is the rot of the human soul. It is the most malignant of spiritual tumors, which if left untreated, metastasizes and will eventually permeate our spiritual circulatory system until no part of us is left untouched by its corruption. Every sin that you can think of can be traced back to the evil of pride because every sin is a fundamental declaration of our own autonomy and independence from God and His Word. Every time we sin, we say, No, God, I know that this is what Your Word says, but I know better. What is that but pride? It was pride that lay at the root of the disobedience of our first parents, the disobedience that plunged humanity under the curse of sin. They had heard the commandment clearly, but they decided that they would be lords of their lives. 
Other sins are closely associated with evil deeds, covetousness and theft, lust and adultery, hatred and murder. And so they're, they're easy to, to isolate and, and, and target. So I'm going to take aim at all the vices in my life. But pride tempts us when we've done things right. Pride, friends, is an evil, wicked, tenacious cancer. And our great physician will take the most extreme measures, even the severest of afflictions, to eradicate it from our hearts. Psalm 78, 34, Asaph says of God's dealings with Israel, when he killed them, then they sought him and returned and searched diligently for God. In Psalm 119, 71, the psalmist says, it was good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. In both of these instances, whether Israel as a whole or the psalmist in particular, we see that God brings affliction upon his people in order to humble them that they might be freshly affected with their own powerlessness, with their own frailty, and would seek all their dependence in their heavenly Father. See, the fires of, of divinely ordered affliction burn away the dross of pride and self-confidence. What's that mean then? Well, it means, number one, Rise up with all your might against the first discernible actings of the sin of pride. Stand guard at the city gate of your soul. Keep watch over your heart. And the moment that you discern any inflated spirit, any exaltation of self, any self-congratulation and self-satisfaction, Draw the sword of the Spirit from its sheath and sever that pride at its root. Wield the sword. Proverbs 16, 18. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. Preach that to yourself when you discern that rising up in your soul. Proverbs 29, 23. A man's pride will bring him low. Isaiah 66, 1, thus says Yahweh, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. Where then is a house you could build for me? Where is a place that I may rest? For my hand made all these things. Thus, all these things came into being. God's saying, you've got nothing to be proud of. I'm the source of all good things. And then verse 2, but to this one I will look, he says, this, this magnificent, all-sufficient storehouse of blessings looks upon a, kind of, a certain kind of person with his favor. Who's that? Isaiah 66, 2, this one I will look to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. 1 Peter 5, 5, God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. And so when pride rises in your heart, ask yourself, okay, which one do I want to be? Do I want to be the one God opposes or do I want grace? And you wield the truth of the Spirit of God in the Word of God to stick in the neck of that dragon that is the temptation to pride. Settle it in your heart today. Each and every one of you 
You need to go to war with pride in your heart. Because if you don't, your father, the great physician, will send the chemotherapy of affliction to root out your cancerous pride. That leads me to another observation. In the midst of suffering, don't be too quick to dismiss your afflictions as nothing more than persecution. Persecution, it may be. In Paul's case, he could be sure that many of his trials were indeed genuine persecutions for his faithfulness to his ministry calling. But that didn't mean that his trials weren't also designed to mortify pride and to keep him entirely dependent on Christ. It's the same with our sufferings. Even though even those trials that we can identify as being unjustly perpetrated against us by the messengers of Satan are nevertheless sovereignly sent to us by God to accomplish his purposes in us. And so the next time you find yourself in the midst of a trial, amidst opposition, difficulty, especially in one that you've faithfully prayed to be removed from you, Consider whether the design of that trial is to keep you from exalting yourself or, as the case may be, to stop you from continuing to exalt yourself. Consider whether the Lord is afflicting you that you might learn his statutes, as he said in Psalm 119. Whether the fires of this affliction are meant to burn away the dross of pride or, or some other sin in you. Don't just be so quick to say, I'm being persecuted. I'm being tormented for my commitment to Christ. Maybe. But it also may be that the Lord has something for you to learn, some way for you to change, some way for you to grow. Don't dismiss it out of, oh, nothing's wrong with me. I did this. I, I'm persecuted for righteousness sake. No. Go to work on your heart. Now, what will that look like? What, when pride begins to be mortified in you, what noticeable change will that effect? Well, for one thing, you'll come to have Paul's attitude about the stupidity of boasting. And I'll only comment on this briefly because we spent so much time on it in part two of this series on answering the fool, but it receives such an emphasis in this passage that we can't just pass it by in silence. And we see it throughout the passage Verse 31, again, he introduces the account of his embarrassing escape from Damascus with an oath that he's telling the truth, something, again, you'd, exp you'd expect from, uh, you know, before a boastful retelling of some great personal accomplishment. And then it's the, I was let down in a basket. He's, he's, he's just mocking them. He's making fun of boasting. It's dumb. It's stupid. It's foolish. It's absurd calling attention to oneself, glorying one's, in one's own accomplishments. He rec Paul recognizes that he, just like you and me, just like the rest of us, he's got nothing that he hasn't received as a gift of God's grace, 1 Corinthians 4, 7. What do you have that hasn't been given to you? And if it's been given to you, why do you boast as if you did it yourself? He understands that all the glory for anything praiseworthy in his life is due entirely to Christ and not at all to himself. And so he recognizes that to boast in himself is utter foolishness, so much so, so, much so that he's, got to, he's disgusted by the boasting he's forced to do and says things like, oh, if I have to boast, oh, boasting is necessary, but it's not profitable. And then I'm going to invent a guy to speak about so that I don't have to put myself too close to the boasting in my own experiences. 
Boasting is foolish. It's utter stupidity. And I just want to exhort you again. Cultivate this attitude in yourselves. Cultivate a distaste, an aversion, a disgust to boasting, to drawing attention to yourself, to magnifying your own accomplishments, to just making yourself the the topic of conversation. We need to be so enamored with the glory of Jesus that we instinctively run from opportunities to magnify our own glory. Because it is one or the other. We will either delight in Christ's glory or our own glory. John 5.44, Jesus says, How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? You say, oh, Jesus, it's okay. I seek both. No. No man can serve two masters. He will either be devoted to one He will either be devoted to one or despise the other. And Grace Life, I ask you, will you despise the glory of Jesus in favor of your own glory? Anybody willing to do that with a a heart open before the Word of God and the presence of God? I think not. If that's the case, then give up boasting. Give up self-referential talk. Give up the the, the pride of self-satisfaction that even goes unspoken but is ruminated on in the heart. Learn what it meant for Paul to say, I am the chief of sinners. I am the scum of the world, 1 Corinthians 4.13. I am not fit to be called an apostle. I am the very least of all the saints. The Apostle Paul said that about himself, and he meant it. Learn what he means and learn how to mean it of yourself. We ought all to consider ourselves as the chief of sinners. You say, why? Because some some sort of phony humility? No, because our heart is the one we're most intimately familiar with. Yeah, there might be somebody out there who's a worse sinner than I am viewed from the eye of God, but I'm the one who's got to live with me all my life. And if that doesn't cause me to despise myself in my own eyes, something's in my eyes, then it's not the glory of Jesus. I've got a, I've got a vision problem. I may have a heart problem. I may have a spiritual dead problem. One more thought on pride and humility. We've seen the evil of pride, the stupidity of boasting. Third, consider the loveliness of humility. The loveliness of humility. See, Paul's distaste for boasting doesn't stem from having nothing to boast about. And it's not some sort of false humility like, oh, I'm just the worst. I'm, an, I'm sort of like, a, like, I call them Eeyore Christians. Oh, bother. Everything is terrible. I just want to, I'm, I'm just worthless. I've got nothing redeeming in me whatsoever. That's not what it is. Humility is not, oh, I'm just the worst of all creatures because I'm the worst of all creatures. Humility is an accurate assessment of myself in light of the truth of God and the character of God. So Paul doesn't engage in any sort of false humility saying, well, I got nothing to speak about. He says, no, I got stuff to speak about. I'm just not going to do it. He says, if I do wish to boast, I won't be foolish for I'll be speaking the truth. Verse 6. 
But I refrain from this, and I, I love this, so that no one will credit me with more than he sees in me or hears from me. I can't help but marvel at that statement, and maybe because it's so far from native to my own heart, but for so many of us, that is not how that sentence gets written. For us, it is, I refrain from this so that no one will credit me with less than he sees in me or hears from me. I work hard and expend effort so that no one will think less of me than my diligence warrants. I'm concerned that my labors won't be esteemed or praised or rewarded highly enough, that I'll be underappreciated, undercompensated, underrecognized. Sure, there are things about me that are less than flattering, but I'll do what I can to cover those up. I'm going to accentuate the positive. I'm going to put my best foot forward. I'm going to put the game face on. I'm going to fake it till I make it. But for Paul, he refrains from speaking true, true things about himself because he doesn't want people to think too highly of him. He's concerned, not that he won't get the praise he deserves, but that he'll be praised for something he knows he doesn't deserve. He doesn't want his reputation to precede him. He wants people to evaluate him on the basis of what they see in him and hear from him, and that is it. And I call that the loveliness of humility because it is lovely, isn't it? I don't want people to get the idea that I'm better than I am. I just want them to treat me on the basis of my life and my doctrine. Doesn't that make you want to spend time with Paul? Don't you want to hang out with someone like that and learn how to genuinely say that from the bottom of your heart? That kind of humility is lovely. It's attractive. It reflects the beauty of holiness. It reflects the beauty of Christ, who though he was in very nature, God thought not equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being made in the likeness of men, and becoming obedient, even obedient to death on a cross. That has the savor, the aroma of Christ's likeness around it. And so it's, it's lovely to the, the, the regenerate eyes, to the newborn heart. Pride is not lovely. It's not attractive. Pride is ugly. Pride is unseemly. To the redeemed heart, pride is repulsive. Just as much as Paul's humility makes you want to spend time with him, pride in someone that you see exhibited in someone makes you want to run in the other direction, doesn't it? I mean, you, you kind of have to realize, okay, I don't want to be prideful about my not being prideful more than that guy. But it's, it's instinctive. If you see pride coming out, you kind of just go, oh, that's ugly. I got to stop doing that myself. So I exhort you to imitate Paul as Paul imitates Christ here. Mortify pride, give up on boasting, and put on the loveliness of humility. Not just because you'll be more likable, though that is a service to your brothers and sisters, but because the most effective servant of the gospel of Christ crucified is crucified to the world and its applause the servant of the gospel of Christ crucified does all that he can to deflect attention away from himself and whatever grace-given successes God has seen fit to bless him with. 
and to fix attention on the glory of Jesus alone, the sufficiency of the sweetness of Christ to sustain him in the midst of weakness. Because what puts, puts me on display is what God has accomplished in me, is what I've been able to do. But what puts God on display, what puts Christ on display is enduring weakness in such a way that says Christ, again, the presence of Christ is sweeter than the absence of suffering. I'd rather be with him on the difficult path of obedience, which is the path of suffering, than on easy street without him. And when you can say that and you can live like that, you make him look great. You make him look preferable to all the things that the world chases after. So such is our first lesson on pride and humility. Quite a bit there. And to be honest with you, I could go on. You're not surprised by that. But <laughs> a second lesson we can glean from this passage. That is number two, a lesson on experience and evidence. Experience and and evidence. And this comes largely from Paul's account of his trip to heaven in verses 2 to 6. Verse 2 says that this revelation had taken place 14 years ago. Now, what's astounding about that is that there is no mention of that experience anywhere else in Paul's letters. This is the first and only time that he's spoken of this since it's happened. And even here, he only speaks about it with great reluctance. If the Corinthians hadn't found themselves in this predicament where they're infatuated with these boastful, triumphalist, false teachers, and if they hadn't made it absolutely necessary for Paul to boast, it seems Paul wouldn't have spoken about it at all. This magnificent rapture up to heaven to the presence of God, he would have taken it to the grave. Now think about that, given the situation in Corinth. Here Paul is, locked horns with the false apostles in a battle for the souls of the Corinthians. And he'd written 1 Corinthians and he'd made an unplanned visit to quell a rebellion and he was rebuffed in front of the entire congregation. He wrote the severe letter urging repentance. He sent Titus ahead to see how things were going and now he's writing 2 Corinthians in preparation for a third visit. And here they are, the apostles, the false apostles, boasting of everything they can think of Visions, revelations, and ecstatic mystical experiences included. They're assaulting Paul's apostolic legitimacy. They're calling him a phony because he lacks the flashiness and the favor, quote-unquote, that these prosperity preachers enjoy and exhibit. And the whole time, Paul has got this personal rapture in his back pocket, and he says nothing about it. What's that tell you about the Apostle Paul's estimation? of visions and revelations as determiners of ministerial credibility. If these kinds of private spiritual experiences were of any consequence, if they were of any value in certifying the genuineness of a servant of Christ, would Paul not have mentioned this unspeakable vision for 14 years? One commentator put it helpfully. He said, Paul was implying very clearly that ecstatic experiences were not to be publicized unnecessarily and as God-given privileges added nothing to a person's standing or role in the church. What a contrast that we see in the contemporary charismatic movement. 
Entire international ministries are built around this fraudulent notion that a man of God has been given some special insight into some spiritual truth, not by this diligent study of Scripture and its effect in his life and teaching, but through some mystical experience that nobody can repeat or verify. I said it last week, if the false apostles of the first century or the health wealth hucksters of the 21st century were to genuinely experience something remotely close to what Paul describes in this text, they'd be shouting it from the rooftops. They'd be signing book deals and movie contracts and sending out support letters asking you to invest in the kingdom through their ministry. I mean, there is actually a subgenre of Christian literature today called heaven tourism. 90 minutes in heaven, 23 minutes in hell, the boy who came back from heaven. Heaven is for real. These are all book titles. Some of them movie titles too. It's everywhere. And they always come up with the most asinine things to say. They get fitted with a halo and angelic wings. The, the Holy Spirit, you know, he, they see the Holy Spirit. Think about that. They see the Holy Spirit, who's a spirit and is invisible. And he, and he looked, quote, kind of blue. There's a hole in outer heaven that is a portal to hell, which Satan travels often. And you, and you go on and on and on. And then there are always this naive cater of evangelicals eager to sit at the feet of these quote unquote prophets. But Paul said nothing. He said nothing. And even when he was forced to speak of it, he gave no details. He only told the story as a prelude to his own weakness. The point is clear. These kinds of unrepeatable, unverifiable, mystical accounts of prophetic revelation are not a legitimate basis for evaluating the soundness or the maturity or the spirituality of a teacher or a ministry, period. So what is, if that's not the case? What is? Again, verse 6, I refrain from this so that no one will credit me with more than he sees in me or hears from me. The only standard by which a servant of Christ is to be evaluated or regarded is what can be observed in his teaching and in his life, in, what, in a face-to-face, life-on-life relationship. What one hears from Paul refers to his teaching or his doctrine doesn't matter how many experiences you can testify to. What matters is whether your instruction of spiritual truth is consistent with the teaching of Scripture. Yeah, I mean, I know it, it's unbiblical, but, you know, it was my, I saw it. It was my experience. They even said that. The mother of, of Colton Burpo in, uh, in Heaven is for Real, said, or maybe it was the other one. I forget. Malarkey. Beth Malarkey. It's funny. The last name of the kid is Malarkey. And... It's, it's unfortunate, you know, the father, so I guess it's the father's name, so it's, you know, what are you going to do? The father's the one who's, the, the, I say this for this reason, the mother and the son, Beth and Alex, are, the, are the, the people who have been, since the book has come out, trying to reach as many people as they can to say it's all false. The father to- totally made it up. And he's been on book tours and, you know, touring and, and, and trying to milk it for all it's worth. And, and Beth and Alex are actually friends of Grace to You and have contacted us a number of times there. And uh, so we love them and mean no, no ill will by poking fun at the last name. It's just an interesting providence, isn't it? But one of the things that they say is, I think the original one, and I, maybe it's not her, maybe it's the other one. I can't keep them straight. But it's the idea that, oh, I don't want to say that he'll be fitted for, for wings and a halo because Orthodox Christians will know that, you know, people don't become angels. But 
just go ahead and put it in there because that's what he saw. No, what you can see in me, what you, can, what you hear from me, it's not experience that matters. It's, what, it's whether your instruction of spiritual truth is consistent with what the teaching of Scripture is. That's what he, you hear from Paul. And what you see in Paul refers to his life in, of integrity under the dominion of Christ by the Holy Spirit that that biblical doctrine produces. So, Grace Life, this is how you evaluate ministers and ministries. Not on the basis of vaunted claims of impressive experiences, but on the basis of a man's life and his doctrine, which are accessible and observable to you in the nitty-gritty of day-to-day -day ministry in communion alongside the saints. And the same ought to be said of us. We ought to evaluate servants of Christ on the basis of these criteria, and we ought to be evaluated as servants of Christ on the basis of these criteria. You and me, as ministers of the gospel, one commentator says, whatever people may think of us and whatever authority we may gain as a result, let it be on the grounds of what they see us do and hear us say. Let it be on the basis of verifiable conduct and established character and not on the grounds of unverifiable experientialism. May the work of the word, the fruit of the spirit, be our credentials of authenticity and nothing else. Okay, lesson, we've had a lesson on pride and humility, on evidence and experience. A third lesson that we see from this text is, a, is one about prayer and problems, about prayer and problems. And for that, we return to verses 7 and 8. In response to receiving his thorn, Paul says, verse 8, concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. And if we slow our minds down enough to meditate on what the Holy Spirit has given us in this word, we find rich treasure for our own consolation. In verse 8, I find evidence both of Christ's deity and his humanity and how his being the God-man uniquely suits him to minister all manner of consolation to us in our need. First, note who it is that Paul implores. Concerning this, I implored the Lord. Paul directed his prayers immediately to the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, how do we know the Lord refers to the Son and not the Father, or maybe the three-in-one conceived generally? Well, the response that Paul get, receives from, from Christ in verse 9 is, my grace is sufficient for you. My grace. Whose grace? Well, in the final verse of, of 2 Corinthians, chapter 13, verse 14, which is Paul's benediction upon the Corinthians, he ascribes grace peculiarly to Christ, while to the Father he, he ascribes love and the Spirit fellowship. It's, he says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And while we can't make sharp divisions, remembering that any act of one person of the Trinity is the act of all three, it's worth noting that Paul seems to ascribe grace to the Son in a peculiar way. And then, besides that, Christ's response in verse 9 also speaks of power, for power is perfected in weakness. And, at the, and then at the end of the verse, Paul calls that the power of Christ, okay? So the Lord to whom Paul prays is the Lord Jesus. And this, I say, is an indication of his deity. Why? Because prayer is an act of worship. The one you pray to is the one you worship. Note the reference, Isaiah 44, 17, 
makes this connection. It says, as the prophet mocks the idolaters who worship and pray to idols made of wood and stone. Isaiah 44, 17 says, he falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, deliver me for you are my God. So you see the connection. He, he worships the idol. He prays to the idol. Prayer is an act of worship. Don't let anybody tell you that you pray to Mary and the saints without worshiping them, without elevating to them beyond humans into the realm of the worship that only God is worthy of. Prayer is an act of worship. Why? Because it is a confession of powerlessness in oneself and a confession of trust in the power of the one prayed to. Deliver me, Isaiah 44, 17 says, for you are my God. That's just what God does. He delivers his faithful worshipers who call upon him in a day of trouble and thereby magnifies his own power. And that's exactly what Psalm 50, verse 15 says. Call, God speaking, call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. In other words, you glorify as powerful and dependable and mighty the one you call upon when you're in trouble. You glorify the one you pray to simply by virtue of being needy and then trusting him to be the sufficient help in your need. And Paul says, the one I call upon in the day of trouble is Jesus of Nazareth, the carpenter's son the beaten and whipped one, the condemned and crucified one. He is all sufficient to meet my need. He is the object of my worship because he is none other than almighty God himself. But then notice the next words, concerning this, I implored the Lord, we could add Jesus, three times. Three times. Now, whether that refers to three intense supplications repeated when Paul first received the thorn, or whether it refers to prayer on three separate occasions when the assaults of the thorn were especially severe, we can't be certain. But we can be certain that Paul is intentionally pointing us back to the Garden of Gethsemane. In the great trial of his own life, the man Christ Jesus implored his father three times, first, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. And there was silence. And then again, my father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. And there was silence. And then a third time, father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Silence again. And then again, being in agony, it says he was praying very fervently and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. Certainly, the Lord Jesus knew what it meant to implore the Lord three times in the midst of torment. And this is why I say this text pictures Christ's humanity alongside his deity. The Lord whom Paul implored, confident in his almighty divine power to deliver, was none other than the man, Christ Jesus. 
the mediator between God and man, our great high priest after the order of Melchizedek, who in the days of his flesh, says Hebrews 5, 7, offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one who was able to save him from death. Paul does not pray to an utterly unfeeling, totally transcendent, aloof deity, untouched by the weakness and infirmity of human existence, unacquainted with what it feels like to beg for relief in the midst of satanic torment. No, he prays to this great high priest who is not unable to sympathize with his, with his weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. One who had to endure what we have now to endure. One who is eager to give mercy and grace to help in time of need. So Philip Hughes says, and we can imagine with what compassion his petitions were received by the Lord who himself had been so savagely buffeted by Satan. What compassion will Christ receive the cries of his people who himself cried in the midst of affliction? And so this teaches us, dear friends, in the midst of your afflictions, in your trials, go to your priest. When you find yourself laboring under the thorns of temptation and affliction, may it be the reflex of your heart, as it was for Paul, to fly to Christ in prayer. He is perfectly suited to your need. He is almighty God, the receiver of prayers, and thus sufficient and powerful and able to deliver you. And he is the God-man of the same nature as you, acquainted with the weakness and the frailty of humanity and able to mediate between God and men. Before Hebrews 2.18, since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Oh, friends, in any and every affliction, May your first instinct be to run to your high priest who receives you at the throne of grace, who sympathizes with your struggle and gives bountifully out of the compassion that he has earned by experience. Why is it so hard for us to pray? Why is it so hard in the midst of a trial to, to bow our hearts in humility and say, I am unfit for this? God will never give you more than he can handle. you can handle. Baloney. He'll give you way more that you can handle. He delights to give you more that you can handle so that he can humble you to the dust and so that he can magnify his own sufficiency when you call on him. So call on him. Even if you've got to stop, close your eyes and kneel to arrest your attention away from your own thoughts and vain imaginings. Do it. Do what has to be done. Oh, I'll pray about that. Yeah, I should pray. No, get down. Always respond to every impulse to pray. And I say, persist in such prayer. Neither Jesus nor Paul received an answer to their prayers after their first petition or even after their second petition. It was only after the third time that Paul implored the Lord to remove the thorn that he got an answer. And that only reinforces Christ's own lesson to his disciples 
that we have to persevere faithfully and trustingly in our supplications to the Lord in the midst of our trials. We can't be like the disciples who couldn't watch and pray for one hour, but fainted. We must be like the importunate widow who will wear the judge out before relenting in her cries for help. And what does Jesus say? Will not God bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night? And will, and will he delay long over, him, over them? There will come an answer. Now, the answer that comes might be no. It was that way for Paul. The Lord did not remove his thorn. But as we've said, he did better than change Paul's circumstances. He changed Paul by giving, giving him the grace to endure his circumstances in weakness in a way that glorified Christ's strength. So, brothers and sisters, heed these lessons. Concerning pride and humility, recognize that pride is evil, boasting is stupid, and humility is lovely. Concerning experience and evidence, recognize that genuine spirituality is never certified by unverifiable reports of personal experiences, but only by our life and our doctrine, observed, tested, and tried in the context of open communion with the saints. And concerning prayer and problems, may it be the reflex of your heart to fly to Christ in the midst of temptations and afflictions. For in him we have an almighty God able to save and a compassionate high priest able to sympathize. And just one word before we close to those here this morning who remain yet outside of Christ. Dear sinner, as long as you remain destitute of a saving relationship with Jesus, you have no such great high priest to sympathize with your weaknesses. All the strength and all the comfort that the children of God receive from so glorious and merciful and faithful a high priest as Christ lies entirely beyond your grasp. The only thing you can expect from the Lord Jesus is swift judgment executed in accord with the principles of strict justice. And because you remain outside of Christ, devoid of a saving union to him by faith, you remain in Adam. You remain in your sins. You remain under the guilt and penalty of having broken the law of the holy God of the universe. All you can expect from him is eternal punishment. But friend, things do not have to stay that way. This merciful and faithful high priest stands ready to receive you. To this day, he occupies human flesh just as yours. Ever and always the God-man in a full human nature presenting before the throne of his father the wounds of his cross. Wounds by which he made atonement for sinners just like you, with sins just like yours, by receiving in himself the full exercise of his father's wrath as a substitute in the place of his people. This great high priest bore the sin of many, Isaiah says. He interceded for the transgressors and now he lives forever and ever to make intercession for his people, to be their compassionate high priest, graciously dispensing mercy and grace to help in times of need. Sinner, come to Christ. Own your guilt before a holy God. Despair of any effort to save yourself and run to this great high priest who has accomplished salvation in full. 
by his life, death, and resurrection. Rest all your hope for acceptance with God in the doing and the dying of Christ. Trust in him alone for righteousness and for forgiveness and marvelous news, you shall have him and all the glorious benefits that are wrapped up in him. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that you would save your people, that you would send out the Holy Spirit now to ride the power of that word, your word, to create faith and repentance in the hearts of those that are dead, but whom you have marked out from before the foundation of the world to set your affection upon. Father, bring that to pass. Bring salvation to pass for some in this room today, even now. And for those of us who know the sweetness of your salvation, who have long since come to rest under the banner of Christ's love, may we learn these lessons. May, you, may we be humbled to the dust, ever aware of our own insufficiency and Christ's utter worthiness that we would consider boasting foolish and humility lovely and attractive. Trace that image of Christ's humility on the soul of each and every one of us. Guide us to, in, to discerningly evaluate teachers and ministries, not on the basis of experience, but on the basis of life and doctrine, and, and equip us to always instinctively run to Christ in prayer every time we face a trial, tasting the fullness of his sufficiency, able to answer us as the God-man, our perfectly sufficient mediator. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. For more information about the ministry of the Grace Life Pulpit, visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com. Copyright by the Grace Life Pulpit. All rights reserved.